Hey everybody, Summer Terry here, and on this episode of May the Horse Be With You, I kind of just want to catch everybody up to speed because man, it's been a minute since I've done a podcast, and it's not that I hadn't enjoyed doing them, it's been that we've just been really, really busy with some of our other projects, and this is just kind of simply one that got put on the back burner. The other thing that I've kind of been working through is some health issues of my own, and it's hard once you get through a long day at work to have the creativity to sit down and work on doing these podcasts. Even though most of the time I have like, you know, three points on a notepad written down and the rest of it's like totally fly by the seat of my pants, you still have to have a level of creativity to make these podcasts go. So I want to start off with just thanking our listeners because I was actually kind of overwhelmed whenever I turned on my podcasting app and we had jumped like 2,000 listeners and it's been months since I've done a podcast. And, you know, like that, the support that y'all have, I I keep getting emails every day of, you know, we found you through your podcast and, um, or people write me on Facebook and they're like, I started by listening to your podcast and now I follow your Facebook and, it's just awesome to know that we're actually reaching people and trying to get information out there. And that at the end of the day, that's the important thing is the more information that we can get out there, the better our horses are going to be for it. The better we're going to be as riders and the better we're going to be as therapists. So um, I'm going to kind of reintroduce myself just for some of the new listeners that maybe don't know my background. Um, I Again, my name is Summer Terry. And I own Superior Therapy LLC in Guthrie, Oklahoma, which is a horse and human therapy facility. And my original background is in um, human massage. I've been a massage therapist for 15 years, and that certificate has taken me pretty well anywhere I've wanted to go in the U.S. Um, I've worked everything from having a routine office to working rodeos and barrel races and futurities and um, jumping events to MMA fights and doing some charity events, 5Ks, sports events. Again, it just, it's been, that's probably a podcast in its own, just simply all of the stories of the massage and the things I've encountered over the years. But that was one of the things that also helped to scope my equine practice. Through my human practice, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great surgeons. I've done a lot of referring to them. I've done a lot of, um, you know, post-surgery rehabs, uh, things like that. Um, and just understanding how the biomechanics, how the body works. And I feel like that's extremely, extremely important to therapists. And, you know, a, a lot of massage therapists stay on the spa side of things where they do a lot of Swedish techniques and it's more relaxing, which is great because there's a big demand for that as well. But I kind of coined the term pain management massage, and that's been the term that I've used to describe my practice for pretty much the entire 15 years. I also do acupuncture for people. Um, And, you know, do some PEMF treatments and things like that as well. So, um, a lot of that crosses over into what what we do for the horses. And so, jumping over to that, uh, the rehab facility that we have. I mean, we do a lot of post-surgery stuff. We do fitness and conditioning. 
We do some of the really hard cases of, you know, the vets have looked for this lameness and they can't find it. And so we put the horse on our aqua pacer and we tread this horse until we either, you know, if it's weakness, it gets better. Or if there's, sometimes there's a, the horse actually gets worse and there's a lameness that surfaces. And that's one way that we actually help these veterinarians. And it makes their job a little bit easier for them. You know, do we diagnose? Absolutely not. But at the same time, life lessons have taught a lot of things over, you know, my 30 years of being in the horse industry and things. Um, you're you're going to learn a lot in 30 years. And I started really, really young and had the opportunity to train under a lot of extremely talented therapists and vets, just as I have on the human side of um, actually my human learning started way before I ever had a license in it. Um, I started training with a massage therapist when I was about 13 years old and I was positively fascinated with what she did and it didn't take me long to decide like this was going to be the path that I went down. Then to add kind of another layer to the type of therapist that I am, I've had my own health journey and my health struggles throughout the last few years. Um, I've actually had 18 surgeries since 2013, um, and I had a couple minor things that were non-related before that, but, you know, I, I feel like my timeline starts in 2013 when I started really having a lot of health problems, and one day I'll do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> today's not that day, but um, one day I'll, I'll break down and I'll tell my story, but the, the thing that I wanted to point out about my story is I feel like it adds a layer of empathy and understanding to these horses that we have in the barn. And reason being is, you know, I've had injections done. I have a pain, man, you know, again, I've had the surgeries done. Um, I've had the comebacks from these surgeries. I go to a pain management doctor where I do, I've done nerve blocks. I've done nerve ablations. I've done nerve testing. I've done epidurals. I've done just regular, um, steroid shots and, and nerve shots and things like that. Um, I've also done exosomes, which is a form of stem cell therapy. Um, I've actually done that more than once. I've done a lot of the full body, like the Wharton's jelly shots that are to he- supposed to help with inflammation. So, you know, I, I kind of, <laughs> kind of a bit can know what your horse is feeling like based on what they've had done. And, um, another layer to add to that, I do all of my epidurals. I do all of my nerve ablations. I do all of my nerve blocks completely awake, um, with, with the type of nerve pain that we have to constantly chase in my body. It would do no good for me to be sedated because it makes it that much harder on my pain management doctor to know that he's in the right nerve, that he's in the right spot. So he basically goes a lot off of obviously the MRIs and the diagnostics, but he goes more so off of my intuition of what I'm feeling when he's in that nerve using the live x-ray. So that being said, there's also two ways of doing epidurals. Um, some people go in and they're completely sedated and that doctor has to like hope that they've hit the correct nerve where me being awake, um, (laughs) you totally know. And then you can trace your nerve path and you, uh, definitely don't need a therapist education when they have a needle in that nerve to be able to chase the nerve path because you're going to know where it's running to. And so, 
that's one thing I got a huge request to talk about injections. And maybe that's where I'm going to start today with this podcast. Um, (laughs) This may kind of end up all over the board and in left field because, again, I haven't done one of these for a while and I'm a little bit rusty. And it's always kind of like starting over. Like you get to talking and it's like riding a bike, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, sometimes these just kind of direct themselves and I don't even know what I'm going to talk about and I just start talking. So I'm going to circle back to the topic of injections and actually what they do. So this is going to be kind of the same whether you're a person looking at doing injections for yourself or whether you're looking at doing injections for your horse. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what do injections actually do? So everybody wants to coin these injections like, this is some magic cure, like we're going to inject this horse and he's going to go back to working and we're never going to have to do anything else again. And there's truth in that statement, but there's also a lot of false in that statement as well. So basically injections use steroid, usually a short acting steroid, a long acting steroid. And if you're a human, you get a little bit of lidocaine in there. That way you don't get quite a sore. Um, and so basically that short acting steroid goes in there and kills that inflammation, gets rid of that pain quickly, but then it wears off. And your long acting steroid typically takes a little longer to actually get to working, but it's what's supposed to give your longevity for your injection. And so, um, there's, there's different things. Like I'm not going to get completely into the whole science of everything that's used to be for injections, because I feel like that probably needs to be a podcast with a vet and we'll get somebody on there to do that. Um, I'll, I'll add that to my list, but I can tell you how they feel in my body and I can tell you a bit of what your horse is feeling as well. So, Um, one of the first things people talk about is the time off. How much time off should you give with injections? And a lot of times that depends on the amount of inflammation that's built up. So if it's a horse that's say, you know, I don't know, 15 and never been injected, he's been used hard his entire life. He's probably going to have a lot of inflammation built up as well as probably some bone changes and changes to that joint also. So that horse is going to get a little bit more sore. Um, so whenever we are as acupuncturists, whenever we're needling a spot, I can tell how much tension is in that area based on how my needle goes in. Um, vets do the same thing. So you'll hear a vet say, oh, that was really, really tight. Or, um, sometimes you'll get fluid kickback. Uh, typically your coffin joints, whenever they go to inject coffin joints, it's not atypical to have a lot of fluid there. Um, hawks are sometimes what they call a dry joint. So sometimes it's really tight to get in there. Nothing comes out. Sometimes they stick the joint and you'll get some fluid out of there. Um, it's kind of the same with, with the stifles as well. Sometimes there can be fluid on the stifle. Sometimes it's what they call a dry joint. Um, and it just happens to be how, how your horse is manifesting that inflammation and that pain. So, um, a lot of times when they do dry joint, or if you have a horse with dry joints, they will suggest hyaluronic acid, where if you have a horse with um, a lot of fluid, sometimes your cortisone is simply the answer because they're already building fluid in that joint. 
And each vet is going to have their own special, this is what they like to use. So again, I'm not going to get into that. We're going to just talk about what is your horse feeling when they get injected. So circling back to the amount of time off, you know, that horse that isn't used to being injected as often, or maybe has never been injected, they're going to be more sore than a horse that stays on routine injections. So that horse that's on a routine injection, they're going to be able to go back to work quicker. You know, this is your pro rodeo horse or your horse that you haul every weekend and it's like, eh, yep, he sliced that barrel or he didn't get his rear end underneath him and I've looked at my calendar and it has been four months since injections or it's been six months since injections and we normally do them on this date and it's time to go in. So on the, in that case, you're kind of a lot of times ahead of the curve. You've noticed the first change in your horse, which is usually demeanor. Um, demeanor is usually your first change. Performance is usually your second change. Um, you know, you've noticed those, you're on top of it. You get that horse injected. Three days, you're probably going to be back running that horse. Um, I have seen horses that have never been injected or been injected as older horses that sometimes require six to seven days before the soreness actually goes away enough that they can continue to go back and perform. And, you know, I feel like that's where it's really, really important to read your horse. Um, I actually had a horse that I ran that had PSSM and we had to do a lot of injecting with him because inflammation is definitely one of the things that goes along with PSSM, the variant one. Um, and that horse actually enjoyed getting his injections. I think he enjoyed the sense of pain relief. Like, he was one that we did not even typically sedate when we injected him. And to this day, I've never had another horse that I would trust to stand there and not be sedated, but that one would. Um, you know, that being said, he was very acclimated to having serapin injections in his back. Um, we did hocks and stifles on him. We did coffin joints. Um, we, and, and like I said, we would do different injections with the acupuncture points and things like that. Um, so he was a very, very tough horse, but the sense of relief that he got from being injected always told me I was doing the right thing. Um, the flip side of that, I grew up rodeoing with some people that were highly, highly against injecting. Um, and I think the people that are against it don't understand it for one thing. Um, and they've also never been in pain because I'm telling you when my nerve pain flares up, I am calling my pain management doctor, uh, because I am not a believer in narcotics. I, I'm not a believer in pain medication past taking ibuprofen or something like that. Um, <laughs> but I am hundred percent a believer in calling my pain management doctor and going and getting me injected so that I can take care of your horses better. Um, but anyway, uh, these people that I rodeoed with, they were 120% against injecting their horse. And I watched this horse go from being unstoppable at the open rodeos. I watched him go to high school nationals. I watched this horse go from a horse that was thriving and a solid 1D horse in any race to a horse that fell three times on a pattern and was the only horse of the night at the rodeo that fell. So, you know, it wasn't 
when there's 50 entered and you're the one that falls, most of the time that is not ground. Most of the time that's a conditioning issue with your horse. You know, when everyone's having trouble, that's one thing. When you're the only one that's had trouble, um, I think the ground gets used as an excuse. And so I watched this horse go and fall multiple times. Um, these people were also against the use of banamine, the use of NSAIDs, Prevacox, things like that, because they believed, you know, their horse should just run however he felt like running to that day, which is fine if you have a horse that doesn't have a big heart. But when you have one that has a big heart, they'll destroy themselves just to try to please you. And I, uh, I watched this horse go from a horse that walked in the alleyway to a horse that was rearing up, a horse that you couldn't get in. Um, I, I watched his top line go away. I watched his hips fade away. I watched a huge horse become kind of a shadow of himself. And by the time that they had come around to deciding that all of us barrel racers that were injecting our horses weren't crazy and we weren't using it for quote-unquote performance enhancing, that we were just trying to take care of our horses because we ask them to do a really hard job. Um, this horse had so many alley problems that it took them two years to get him back down the alleyway and he never ran 1D again. He was a 3D horse. Um, he was consistently a 3D horse until he was retired. And, you know, it's one of those things we all tried to help and we tried to educate and they were just not ready to hear it. And then by the time they were ready to hear it, it was too late. So, you know, um, I, I don't think it's one of those things. Injecting is not always the answer. But at some point, you have to break that pain cycle. And then on the flip side of it, you have the people that inject, and then they want that to be a magic pill. Like, this, we've injected this horse, we've spent $300 to inject this horse, and we expect this to cure everything. Well, you have to stop and think, okay, how did your horse get into that position? You know, why are you injecting hawks on your horse? Is he weak in his glutes? Are you doing the wrong type of conditioning? Does he have a negative palmer angle on his hind feet that's putting pressure on these joints? Um, you know, is he straight behind? Is he sickle hocked? Is he cow hocked? Is, is, is there a confirmational thing in there that we need to work on? Is it simply overuse that you're creating inflammation and that inflammation is causing that joint to need to be injected? Or did it come from an injury? You know, did he get kicked in the hock? Did he kick his stall and start that inflammation so, you know, that's where as a horse owner, it's our job to advocate for our horses because nobody knows our horses as well as we do. And, you know, I, I get horses all the time in the barn. They're like, you know, we injected hawks and we don't understand why he didn't go back to running. Well, when you look at this horse from a biomechanic standpoint and you do a muscle assessment on this horse, it's like, well, he's so weak in his glutes, he can't fire. Probably the glutes were weak first and then that caused the hawks to flare up. You know, if there's not something super visible on an x-ray, such as, you know, like arthritis or narrowing of the joint or lack of cartilage, things like that, a lot of times these issues start simply through lack of fitness or incorrect fitness for that horse. And 
you know, that, that's a whole th- statement on its own of studying biomechanics. Um, that's why the textbooks that we use for our education courses, there is a huge chunk of probably a hundred pages of this book that simply explain what biomechanics are and how we use them in horses. And, you know, it starts with how did God design these horses to carry us? You know, why do we ride horses more so than any other animal? And the fact of the matter is they're designed for it. So a horse's spine is a lot different than ours. Um, when I'm teaching my kids, I tell them, I'm like, our horse's spine looks like the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's actually a pretty correct analogy uh, because a horse's spinal column forms a bow. And it does kind of look like a suspension bridge, if you will. And so that bow works with your rib cage and your sternum and your muscles to form a, your core forms basically like the bowstring. So if you think about, you know, your, your old school hunting bow, you have your handle, your top, your solid part, and then you have the string. So when your horse's core is strong, your bowstring is going to be flat and that's going to help tighten and that's going to lift that horse's spine up so that he can carry your body weight. When you have a horse that has a super weak core, his bottom bowstring is going to kind of look like you're pulling it down a little bit. He's going to have the beer gut going on and not look like an athlete. And what happens is when you have that pressure pulling down on the bowstring, it creates weakness in the top line. So that top of the bow starts to sink down and it kind of, it's being pulled down by the bowstring. And if you don't strengthen that core, there's nothing to lift your bow or lift your Golden Gate Bridge up to keep it strong. You know, going back to how I teach my kids when I talk about the Golden Gate Bridge, I say, you know, we drive along the road. The road is the strong part. And if that road falls out from underneath and that foundation falls out from underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, those ropes at the top, the suspension itself, is not going to be very safe. It's not going to be very strong because the foundation is gone. The bridge is held up from the bottom, not from the top. And you know, that's, that's just kind of a simple analogy that I use to try to get people to understand how abdominal muscles work in horses. Um, (laughs) I have all kinds of silly videos. If you look on our Facebook page, I have videos of me walking like a duck with extremely poor posture and my tummy stuck out. And, and the reason I do those is to show people that when your core isn't strong, You have no stride, so for one thing, it shortens your stride length, and it also gets rid of your, as I call it, the drivetrain in the back of your horse. Um, One thing, if y'all are not used to listening to my podcast, I have an analogy for everything. So, you know, I I try to tell everybody, I'm like, you know, we have to condition our drivetrain because our horses are a rear-wheel drive vehicle, and if you don't have a strong hip and a strong glute and a strong core, that horse is still going to try to go out there and perform. And what you end up seeing is these horses that pull themselves forward or drag themselves through the pattern 
and they end up with an overbuilt front end, usually foot soreness to accompany that because they already bear more weight on their front feet than they do their hind, and now they're trying to even bear extra weight on there, which doesn't typically work in your favor for very long. And then you see these horses that are so weak in their hind end that they go into the barrel turn and they can't hold themselves into the turn, so they step out and sling their rear And those are the horses in the barrel pattern that typically will fall if the ground doesn't hold them because they didn't have enough fitness to even start the turn to begin with on good ground. And then when you get outside the tracks and you hit that ground that shifts, that horse will fall. The other thing that we see a lot is like horses that they fire really hard into the first barrel. They turn the first barrel really well. They get over the second barrel and they kind of fade off the backside of the second barrel a step or two, but they're able to recover. But then by the time they get to the third, they're so tired that they just kind of do this like half a sweep thing and really step off the third barrel and then usually we'll start ringing a tail, start slowing down, sometimes we'll bleed, um, and you just lose everything from your third barrel home. And a lot of that is lack of fitness. Because everybody wants to get on and we want to condition these horses and just long trot, long trot, long trot, but we don't ever do anything to build up that hip. It is, it takes an extremely talented, fit horse and a rider that is very knowledgeable for a horse to hold a frame and long trot for extended periods of time. Most people do not have their horse in the correct frame or they think they do, or they're using draw reins and they have their horse behind the bridle with no release and they're putting all this pressure on the pole and, you know, the cervical vertebrae and things like that, but they're not actually doing the good that they think that they're doing. And so, you know, that's one thing that we preach with our corrective exercises is, you know, if you're not a person that can tell whether or not your horse is in frame, we need to establish exercises from the ground where the where you can actually see how the frame moves because then you'll learn how it moves with you out on there as a rider. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of working parts. It's not just simply saddle up and go to town with your horse. Um, we just finished up the BBR finals. And one of the things that we noticed, I said up there, I didn't get to watch a lot of runs, but I did watch about a hundred runs in the short go. Um, and one of the girls that was with me asked the question, they said, you know, why does everything come apart in the short go? And I've been asked that question tons of times and there's a lot of factors, but I'm going to go through a few of them. Um, so you have these horses that, we're going to take BBR finals, for example, and I am in no way knocking how they do their finals, how they do their setup, how BBR runs, because I think it's a great organization, but people aren't prepared for the finals. Um, and yes, this year I realize you know, we're, we can blame the, the situation, the pandemic, and this has been the strangest year to date, but it's the same every year where I, I'm not going to dance around the truth. It is the same every year. There's always horses that don't clock, horses that hit barrels, horses that run off, horses that you can't get in the pen by the time the short go rolls around. And a lot of times what happens is these horses um, qualify their first run. 
And well, let's back up a little bit and, and let's talk about how do you get to the BBR finals. Okay, so the BBR finals is an attendance-based finals. Um, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I have my numbers wrong, but I think you have to make somewhere between 7 and 10 races in a calendar year to be eligible to enter the BBR finals. So a lot of people simply make their 7 races in their favorite pen, and then they go up to finals. So you have the probability of being able to qualify for that finals without actually ever running your horse more than one um, day in a row. You know, you've got all your all calendar year to make your seven runs. Um, now, also there's regional awards and things like that that people are consistently going trying to win these divisional awards and regional awards and also like fraternity awards and things like that. So that doesn't that doesn't actually pertain to everybody, but I see it. And so you have these people that you know qualify in their favorite pen. Maybe it's an outdoor pen, and their horse has never been stalled in a place like the Oklahoma City Fairgrounds. They've never been stalled in a barn with concrete walls where their horses can't see out, um, concrete floors that their horses are not used to standing on. And so you know this is their one big trip to town. Maybe they've hauled 14 hours to be there, and this is their one vacation of the year, is to come to the BBR finals where they can run barrels with all of their friends. And that's great if that's their goal. But the thing is, you have to prepare for these things. And if you're, especially if you're trying to prevent injury and prevent complete chaos when you get to the finals. Um... So, you know, re revisiting what it takes to go through the finals. This year it was extremely hot because the BBR is normally in April and this year it was in August. Um, those of us, well, I work in a barn every single day and one thing that I realized is how thankful I am for how great of airflow I have through my barn. Even when it's hot, my barn's not terrible to work in. Um, we left a long day from working in our barn and about two minutes into walking into the fairgrounds, I was like, oh my goodness, these barns are so hot. I feel like I'm going to die. And I've been working in a barn all day long. And so, you know, my therapist mind is already going, how many horses are bleeding here that have never bled before? How many horses are going to bleed because people don't understand how heavy the air is in this barn? There's no airflow. There's, there's no function. Like, how many people are doing breathing treatments and nebulizing their horses and trying to prevent this before you actually have a problem? Um, you know, followed secondly by how many horses are we going to have colic and tie up because they're dehydrated and their owners don't realize it? So, you know, we, we ended up going through and actually meeting up with several of our customers. Um, we partnered up with Tonda Collins from Equiresp and... I sent my girls up to do breathing treatments, which we met several horses that either bled through Lasix or um, bled for the first time or got up there and got sick. Um, you know, we, we were definitely able to go and help several, several horses just on the whim of being up there and people asking questions or having a complete meltdown because their horse wasn't acting right. And so much of that is preparation. And I'm not saying that you have to go out and buy an Ecoresp. Um, that being said, if you want one, we are a dealer. Uh, but I'm a dealer because I see them work and, and I like the product. Um, the equipment is great. And I'm all about preventative medicine. 
It takes 20 minutes out of your day to echo-resp your horse before you run. You know, borrow a friend's. There's somebody, I don't care what barrel race you're at, there is somebody that you can throw them 20 bucks and they will totally echo-resp your horse for you. Um, It's all about trying to prevent these situations. You know, now if it was in the fall or in the spring and it was just mild weather, we'd be less worried about it. Um, I can tell you firsthand in the fairgrounds, I, I didn't use winter as an example because the barns at the fairgrounds get very, very ammonia smelling. Um, and when they lock those barns down in the wintertime, I'm not really sure which is worse, the uh, summer air and the lack of or the winter ammonia that gives you pneumonia at the end of the week up there. So, <laughs> and, and I'm not bashing the Oklahoma City fairgrounds. I'm just speaking the truth, y'all. I've been to a lot of barrel races there over the years, and it's just like you either come home with like the sickness of death, or it is hot and you sweat to death. That's that's our two seasons. Um. <laughs> anyway, that that being said, jumping back to the topic here, it's all about I, I'm huge on preventative therapies, and so that was one thing that we ran across um, up there, and and that was just the fraction of the horses that we actually saw just and treated just because people knew us. You know, there I'm sure there were tons more that went completely undiagnosed and untreated. Um, that being said, every time I walked past Dr. Ford's booth, he was hopping all week long, and he did a lot of IV bags and a lot of vitamin um, vitamin electrolyte bags and things like that. Which some of that people are using as preventative. Some of it was treatment for chaos and things that had went wrong. Just kind of completely depended upon the situation. Um, but anyway, going back to the fitness, you see a lot of people that made their first run and their first run was great and it qualified them for the short go. Well, then another thing that you have the opportunity that the BBR gives you is you almost have an opportunity to run somewhere each day. Um, I saw horses that made, I believe, five runs if you made the short go. Um, Because we had one customer that ran her her two go, maybe four runs, her two go arounds. She also ran in the youth and then made the short go as well. So she ran four days in a row on her horse. Um, That being said, they've been hauling all summer and their horse was very fit enough to handle it. Um, that being said, they also do a lot of preventative therapies on that horse. And I think that makes a big difference in their success. Um, but you have a lot of people that go there and they enter every race because they want as many chances to place as they can, which is great if your horse is fit for that. But what ends up happening is these horses get tired every single day that it goes on up there at that show it's exhausting and it's tired. Um, you also see horses stocking up in stalls because they're not used to being stalled. And, you know, everybody feels like they have to have the expensive ice vibe boots or the whirlpool boots like we have. And those therapies are nice because they're designed to make your job easier. And, you know, I feel like if you have a therapy that's convenient, people will use it if it's convenient. But that being said, there is no reason 
you can't go, um, well, and another thing too, there's always two, a couple salt spas there. Um, Andrea Workman has her salt spa and you know, that tends to be what I use whenever I'm on the road. But that being said, I am not above going and buying ice and putting my horses in a bucket. That is what we did for 20 years before all of these new and improved therapies come out. And it is very, very, very effective for you to buy cheap Epsom salt from Walmart, cheap ice from the gas station, a cheap manure bucket, and put your horse in ice. Um, I have so many people that go, well, I can't afford the salt spa. I can't afford to do these things. Well, I'm telling you for probably less than $20, you could have iced your horse for all three runs with Epsom salt at the BBR finals. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes it takes more effort to save money, but your horse should come first. And what people don't realize is when those horse's legs are stocked up like that, you've already got inflammation in those tendons and ligaments. And so you go and you run that horse, you risk soft tissue injuries, you risk tearing, you risk all these other things that you have to worry about, um, and it's just really, really important to take care of our horses, especially if that's the only horse that you have. And that's a horse that you want to run until he's 18 or 19 years old. Um, and to me, that's the difference in people that consistently win and people that are kind of one and done or that get lucky. And the, the hard truth of it is, is it's how much effort are you putting in to keep that horse running and to take care of that horse. Um, another thing, I haven't Googled this mix in a long time. I have people that say, oh, I can't afford those expensive liniments. You can take um, green witch hazel and wintergreen alcohol and you can mix the two of those together. Maybe the wintergreen is on the witch hazel. Uh, one of these Facebook groups, I promise you, has the exact recipe for it. But you mix that together with water, and short of Googling it, I'm not going to remember the parts. But if I can find that recipe, I'll post it on our Facebook page. Um, now, that being said, that type of liniment is going to be very cooling. It's going to tighten and tone your tendons a bit. It's probably not going to be as effective as your liniments that have your essential oils, that have CBD in them, that have other things that enhance that base formula. But that being said, if that's what you can afford, 10 bucks at Walmart, mix it with water. It's better than nothing. And, you know, I'm all about using what you have. Um, the other thing that I think that plays a part in it is the fitness of your rider. So, you know, let's talk about the fact that you've been at the fairgrounds hauling buckets of water, hauling manure. Again, a lot of these people do not stall places, so they're not used to having to haul water and haul manure and clean stalls every single day for a week being at a show, walking on concrete. And, you know, if you've ever been to the state fairgrounds in Oklahoma City, like you will walk 30 miles your first day, and then you may walk 60 miles your next day, and then your feet are so numb like, I can tell you from being a massage therapist and for working that show for 12 years, your people are just as crippled as the horses by day three. So now think about how your riding has 
uh, decreased. Not saying that people aren't riding good in the finals. I'm saying your rider's body hurts. So they're not riding quite the same as they were on go around number one. You know, we all come bouncing into the BBR with our earrings on and our makeup done and our hair fixed and everything. Like we come rolling in looking great. And then by day three, everybody's like, I have on yoga pants and my favorite pair of tennis shoes because I can no longer walk. And, you know, that's, that's part of it too, is having yourself conditioned to be able to do what you need to do as a rider. Um, you know, I can tell you if your low back hurts from walking on that concrete and your feet hurt, your core is weakened. Um, I can tell you firsthand from my experience on that. And so a weak core, um, definitely is going to have you not riding the same. Tense shoulders, a lower back being sore than that tension rising up to your shoulders. That's going to make a big difference on how you sit on your horse, how you ride. Maybe you're sore and you step a little bit on that inside stirrup and drop your shoulder. Um, you know, the same, same thing with people that go to cutting and reining shows or English shows, you know, if you're taking care of your own horse and you're having to put in all that work, you know, and your body's a little bit sore, you're not going to ride quite as fresh as you did. And that's where I also feel like preventative maintenance is important for us. Doing stretches, stretching your horse, stretching yourself, making sure that you're trying to have the best posture you have. Maybe icing yourself as well. Um, you know, it's worth spending a little bit of that 20 bucks worth of ice on yourself also. And just trying to make sure you're being the best that you can be so that your horse can be the best that they can be. So I'm going to circle back now around to back to my original thing of injecting. And I promise I had a method to my madness here. So you see a lot of horses at these shows like this by day three, they're over at the vet booth and they're going, well, yeah, hawks need injected. This needs injected. Coffin joints need injected. And I see the frantic looks in people's eyes and they're just like, I entered the BBR finals. Now my horse is crippled and it was the ground. It was this, it was the stalls. It was blah, blah, blah. No, sometimes it was that you weren't prepared. Had you been icing that horse every single day, that horse might not have built up that inflammation that you're seeing in those hocks. And that's where a vet can only look at the lameness that's presented in front of them. And so your vet's not going to say, well, your horse isn't fit. You weren't prepared. How much have you been riding your horse? They're going to flex that horse, do a flexion test, trot that horse, and they're going to tell you on a scale of zero to five of lameness what they see with that horse. And a lot of times your answer is going to be inject, which is breaking that pain cycle. You know, now that being said, sometimes you could opt to not inject, come home, do your icing, do your hand walking, get your horse off of the concrete, turn them back out, you know, maybe give some Prevacox or some Bute or something like that, get that inflammation down, and maybe that problem goes away, but it's going to return the very next time you enter a three-day race if you don't stop and say, why am I injecting? And what can I do to possibly not have to inject in the future? And a lot of times that boils down to your preparation and your fitness. You know, now again, your exceptions to that are going to be horses that don't have enough cartilage or 
that have had a trauma or an injury or that have spurs, that have bone changes, that type of thing in there. You know, there's some horses you're just going to have to inject their entire career and it's just, you know, a confirmational um, default or something something along those lines. But a lot of times it's that these ho- we take these horses to town and they're not fit enough to be in town. They're not an athlete. And you can't expect a horse that is not fit and not prepared to perform at the same level as the athletes that you see. And, you know, I always encourage people, go study the horses that are winning. It's, it's real easy to sit at home on the couch and go, oh, well, that horse is just winning because it's a dash to fame. Or that horse is just winning because... XYZ trainer rides that horse. Um, you know, that horse is just winning because of how he's bred or because he's a big horse or because they bought him as a winner. There's a lot that goes into keeping a consistent winner winning. And it's not simply just pedigree. It's not simply just who's sitting on top of that horse. A lot of times the who's sitting on top of that horse winning is the person that was best prepared for what they were doing. Now, I do feel like your Futurity people have a bit of an advantage because they're used to riding 15 head of horses a day because this is what they do for a living, where a lot of us work a nine-to-five job and you have that person that has sat at a desk all day long for months leading up to the BBR finals and then they've tried to ride four head at BBR finals and they're running two horses a day for four days solid and, you know, they're just exhausted by the end of it and it's almost no longer fun where your fraternity person, that's kind of another day at their office because they're probably almost a little more, um, well, I don't know if I want to say a little more relaxed, but at least if they're at a show, they're not having to tune on 15 head and they're not cleaning 30 stalls at their own personal barn. They're working just on what they brought to that show which is a high demand in itself. I'm not saying that it's not, but the physical demand might actually be a little bit less than what their daily routine is. I know that like when I actually get to get out of the therapy barn and go to the show and I'm thinking, I've got two horses on my trailer and I'm going, I've only got two horses to stretch every day instead of, you know, 19. I'm going, this is vacation. Like I can do this. This is vacation. And So, you know, those are just a lot of things to think about. And I always encourage people, go, go look at these horses that that are winning. Look at their muscle structure. Study how that horse moves. Now, there's always going to be freaks of nature that um, have underdeveloped glutes and things like that, that those horses are still fast. They're just freaky athletes. But for the most part, um... I actually know the lady that won the BBR this year very well, um, Shannon Lillard, and congratulations to her. Um, That horse is amazing. But when you look at that horse, he has a very balanced muscle structure. He was very, very smooth. There was not, he was very fluid in all of his runs because I actually think he ran four times there as well because I believe he was in the 1D shootout. And I'm pretty sure that he placed and or won off of every run that he made. Um, So again, congratulations to her. What an athlete. But that doesn't come without preparation. And there's a lot of work and preparation that goes into 
keeping one that consistent through that many runs. And, you know, that's why you're NFR girls. They're, they're an elite group of their own. And there's a lot of work that goes into those horses. And I encourage you to study. Study which of those have the fewest injuries. Study their muscle patterns. Study their biomechanics. How do those horses look? Are they balanced? How do they move? What are your riders doing as far as their fitness to be at the level that they are? And it's not always about just being the smallest rider either. I see some riders that are above average in weight that still have the better core strength than 90% of the riders out there. It's not always a scale that determines it's your muscle structure and how you use it and how functional your muscle is. So anyway, um, this has been a little bit on kind of my thoughts on injecting. Um, and I'll, I'll probably in another podcast elaborate on this a bit more. Again, I'd like to get a vet on and kind of discuss their side of things as well, because I feel like we have to all work together. You know, I look at things from a therapist perspective where a vet's definitely going to look at things from a joint perspective and an orthopedic perspective. And so, you know, that's why it's always nice to get the meeting of the minds together and actually work on things as a team. So anyway, um, yeah, thanks for tuning in to my uh, very kind of all over the board first podcast back. So if you've got any ideas or things that you want me to do for podcast, um, hit me up on our Facebook page. It's Superior Therapy LLC. Um, also, you can find me at superiortherapyllc.com. And our newest website is learnequinetherapy.com. And that's where you're going to find all of our certification courses and all of the cool stuff that we're doing for y'all as riders and for helping educate the next generation of therapists as well. So thank y'all for tuning in. Thank you for all the support. Happy trails, y'all.